but also the people come as tourists to a country. They don't just come for the beaches and for the um, and you know the sun. They also come because they want to experience culture. And I mean, to what extent can you actually partake of experiencing an Australian culture without being able to see the art and the theatre and the work that we create as artists that actually express our experience of living here? Hi everyone, welcome again to This Corona Life, a podcast exploring the experiences of an amazing group of people who are sharing with you their experiences in this new coronavirus world, how they've adapted and whether they see any positives or changes for the better coming from this. As always, I'm phoning my guests to comply with lockdown rules. My name is once again Richard Graham and I have a very special guest today. I would personally describe her as one of Australia's most important and successful playwrights. She's a graduate of the National Institute of Dramatic Arts Playwrights Studio, has a master's degree in theatre and film, honours degree in science, and as if that wasn't enough, she's thrown in a master's of law. Her plays have been performed around the world. Her most recent theatre production is Prima Facie, which was touring and which did win the 2018 Griffin Theatre National Playwrights Award. The list of her productions is very long, as is her list of awards and nominations, too long for me to outline here because I'd rather just jump right in and introduce you to Susie Miller. Are you there, Susie? I am. Thank you, Richard. That was a lovely intro. Oh, that's a pleasure. Oh, you deserve it. (laughs) I I did say that the list of awards is long and very impressive, but there is one that I need to ask you about. The the mentorship with one of the American Masters of Theatre, the three times Pulitzer Prize winner for drama, Edward Albee. Yeah. How did that come about? Oh, I don't know. I just it's it's quite unbelievable to me now that I had that time with such a sort of twentieth century icon, really, because now we've lost him, and so it feels even more treasured now that I had that time with him. It was it was basically an award that was in Australia, and somehow they got him to be the mentor. It was kind of amazing, actually. There were a few. There were about six of us, I think, playwrights, and um, but I had actually an extra year with him, which was great, and also went to New York and spent some time with him there. In fact, went to his like loft apartment and saw all the, all the artwork that he collects and talked about theatre and went to the theatre with him. It was quite amazing. What? You went to the theatre <laughs> with him? What, yeah, just like yeah, sitting down like he was a normal person or something? <laughs> <laughs> Were people turning around yeah. and staring and going... No, not at all. And, in fact, when he was in Australia, I took him to see an um, Away, which is the Michael Gow play, which is playing at Griffin Theatre. Yeah. And it was also on the HSC drama list, and he asked me to take him to a piece of Australian theatre that was playing, and that's what was playing at the time. So I took him to see that show, and as we were walking up the stairs to the Griffin, if you know the Stables Theatre, basically it's lots of stairs and lots of pushing and shoving to get in there. All these sort of, I don't know, I guess 16, 17-year-olds pushed their way past him, and I just sort of wanted to sort of stand up like really tall and go, hang on a minute, this is like a 20th century icon. Do you understand who you're pushing (laughs) past, you idiots? Absolutely, and I thought, you've just like come near royalty, theatre royalty, and you don't even realise you're busy shoving past him to get up the stairs. But But, um, did he make you feel at ease or was it a, a bit overwhelming at, at you know? No, first? actually he was he, – look, he's really, he was really smart. He was very witty and, um, in fact, he had a great line that he said to me once because he lost his partner to cancer and his partner was 15 years younger than him. He was an artist. 
And I said, oh, you know, how do you cope after you've lost your partner? And he said, well, you know, Susie, and I do a really bad American accent, so I apologize <laughs> in advance. But he said, well, you know, Susie, you know, he was 15 years younger. He was supposed to see me out. And, you know, so it's very hard. And, you know, at the moment, so, you know, I'm not dating yet. And I thought, oh. wow, he's 89 <laughs> years old. That's like the definition of optimism. He's, he's just giving it a break for a bit. He can't yeah, yeah. get back on to it. So I'm, well, I'm so, dev- you know, I'm not dating yet. And I thought, wow, there you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's but, something, um, yes. It was an astonishing <laughs> mind to engage with but an incredible what, human being. Having spent all that, that time with him, and, and professionally as well as, as personally, what was the biggest takeaway moment from that experience for you? Well, there were two really, and one of them was that he sort of would say to us, take a metaphorical walk on a metaphorical beach and just come up with the whole play in your head and then empty it onto the page kind of thing. So what he did was he kind of allowed particularly myself, but hopefully all of the playwrights that he mentored, that idea that the brewing time, the time where you're in your head with your play before you've started writing is actually just as important as the time before the keyboard or before the page. And I think that you tend to undervalue that and think, I'm not doing anything, I'm just thinking. Yeah, yeah. So he kind of allowed us to sort of not only know that that was really important, but that actually that's the fundamental part of the work and so people can't see that and you can't even see it yourself. You're just waiting, you know, you're sort of figuring it out and kind of brewing it in your head somewhere. But I think the other thing he taught us as well was to sort of take pride in being playwrights. As a, we're also, a lot of us are screenwriters as well, but as he pointed out that, you know, playwrights are actually working with ideas kind of rotting them into a um, into a story, into a narrative. But he also said something really interesting, which was, you know, playwrights are the only writers in dialogue that actually own their own copyright. So screenwriters for TV and film don't own the product that they create. Really. Oh, right. Playwrights fought really hard to actually own the property of the work. So every time it goes on, there's a royalty paid to a playwright, um, which is really – it also means you can't be fired from your own project. So ah. you look back at the ages of all the playwrights that have come through the years or ages and generations forever, and you realise somewhere along the line someone fought to maintain that, and they didn't in screen, and it's a really interesting thing because it differentiates theatre and um, film writing. Yeah, right. In a way that's really significant, yeah. Well, for my benefit and probably – hundreds of thousands of other writers out there. What's your writing routine? Is it like that? Is it brewing? Is it, um, or do, do you play with an idea and, and tap away on your phone while you're walking or, or what, what is it that you oh, do? I never do that. Um, well, I, I'm working on about six projects at any one time, so they're all in different, <laughs> you know, stages. Well, you know, like some, some of them are screen projects as well or some opera projects. Yeah. And basically they're either in first, second or final draft or they're in rehearsal. You know, which is a whole different thing. Um, and so whichever one is the one that's urgent for the time is the one that I'll be working on, basically. Right. But, for example, I just handed in a first draft of a play and, of course, a lot of the time for that was reading some research and thinking about the research quite deeply to see what kind of angle I was going to take. And so that was a bit of reading. So that's obvious research. But most of it was walking my dog around Sydney Park for hours on end going, hmm, what about this, what about that? And talking to other playwrights sometimes, not so much about the actual work, but just about, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get her to do this or whether that's appropriate. And I go, yeah, well, and, that, and people just sort of respond. It's just having a dialogue with other writers really yeah, helps. Yeah, right. Um, and then by the time I actually it all sort of fell together, I do a picture, which I don't mean is anything beautiful by any stretch. It's just basically a sketch and it's not a picture. It's basically a flow chart of this will happen and then this will happen and then this will happen, kind of like a one-page just image of how it will be structured. 
and then I start writing from the beginning and I don't stop till it's finished. Really. Right. Oh, really? So I literally don't stop. I'll just keep going until it's done. I mean, I might sort of do – look, honestly, I write really quickly when it gets to that point, but getting to that point is quite a process. I, I did read somewhere that Nick Enright, another very famous uh, Australian playwright, would have – someone walked into his room and saw a like a pin board covered in – cards that were just like yeah. you say like directories in a sense just chock full mm. of ideas and he would shift them around apparently so similar sort of thing quite a visual yeah. Um, yeah. manifestation of what's going on in his head I guess yeah I never use I've always tried to use the cards and they don't work for me right. at all yeah. in fact I like to keep them in my head so that you, you sort of it's like it's, what I explained it to someone the other day where I said basically, you know, when you're overtaking a car on a country road and there's cars coming the other direction and you have to sort of wait till you're 100% ready and then you sort of grit your teeth and floor the accelerator and come out into <laughs> oncoming traffic and then zip back in. Right. Your timing has to be perfect. Yeah. And it's like once you're out there on the other side of the road, you don't want your car to veer off in the other direction or you don't want to sort of miss the point where you turn back in. So it's that level of it's that kind of restraint and and um and letting go that you have to have in a perfect balance before you start writing. Right. And and do you work from home normally? I do, but you know, usually I'm sort of all over the world cuz I do have a career that really does span sort of three different places, I guess like the UK and um America. So I'm often riding on planes and in airport lounges and you know, in hotel rooms and things like that. So this is the first time I've had a long, during the coronavirus, the first time I've had a long period where I'm actually at home and there's no meetings and there's no plane trips. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. bet. And and up until that, I guess, four or five weeks ago when everything hit, what were yeah. you doing and, and working on up until then? Okay, so right up until then. So I was actually in Indonesia when it hit and I was at a wedding, a family wedding in the, in the middle of Sumatra somewhere. But then I was en route to London where I was working on a play that was going to go on to the West End. And then I went to the Berlin Film Festival to have some film meetings and I came back to London and all the Australians were sending us weird texts saying, you know, I hope you're wearing a mask and... I thought, well, what's wrong with Australia? They think it's going to hit us, you know. Yeah. And then I came back to Australia around the 5th of March, you know, with a whole lot of work that I had collected on my on my journey. And suddenly within two weeks of that, everything just sort of got very, very significant. Yeah. And it was like, wow, okay. Gee, I'm glad I got that trip done when I did because it was a really important trip for me, although I was supposed to also by now I should have been to London and to New York. So wow. it's interesting to think that that trip has totally gone because I have another job in New York that is in, in development process. So what is interesting about this period is that in the screen and in some of the theatres, there's a lot of there's a lot of emphasis on development. So actually writers are more busy than usual. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm finding it that, you know, everyone's going, right, what are those commissions we've got out? Let's start calling them in so that the people that work in the office, that are the dramaturgs that are employed by the companies and the directors employed by the companies, actually have something to do because they're not directing productions and there's no production going on because all the theatres are dark. Yes. So I've found that in theatre, for example, any commissions I've had outstanding, there's a lot more engagement with the theatre company because they think, right, when can we, can we set a date for when we get this draft in as, so that we can, you know, put our workers onto it? And then they get back to you very quickly and you're like yeah. wow this is really fun yeah and yeah. also with screen there's no production going on so there's a lot of development going on and that's quite easy with zoom with story rooms with groups of writers because it's a more of a group activity so um it's yeah it's kind of been interesting so very different yeah that's not how writers normally work i mean people who write for theater are particularly close to actors and directors and they're very much without work at the moment 
So yes. it's odd for us to have work and for them not to be. Yes, and, and, and you seem to just beat the boom gates as they were coming down in terms of your flight home Absolutely. and and had Absolutely. all the had the work tucked under your wing your own wing as yeah. opposed to the airplane yeah. so 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 that was yeah. fortunate from your perspective oh, yeah i mean both fl- the same flight that i flew home on from london um the same time flight with the same airline the day before and the day after both had um both had people with the with the virus on that flight, and everyone had to be quarantined. So oh. I was in I was in that lucky middle flight. So you skated through, and you you yeah, I was really lucky. Fine. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm fine with the time inside. I have two teenagers as well, which is really interesting and tricky. But also, they're quite self sufficient, and it's kind of nice to have them hanging around because normally you don't see them for <laughs> love or money. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're sort of around and sort of helping. And I'm sort of clearing out rooms while I'm thinking about ideas, which means that I'm sort of active right. and walking the dogs. They're not metaphorical. They're real dogs. Yeah. And, um, and I think in a way, not being rush- not out rushing for- to catch a plane or having, you know, like checking into a hotel and figuring out what your meetings are the next day, thinking I'll stay up tonight and read all the documents for it or whatever. There seems to be a certain, it's quite a kind of an ease, there's a sort of grace to the writing at the moment. You, know, you sort of feel like you're sort of gliding through it rather than chasing its tail. So in that regard, it's been kind of an interesting period to be forced inside. Yeah, so, so your usual uh, routine of just sheer madness, jumping and running around yeah. and, and yeah. dust falling off behind you, has been replaced yeah. by another routine in a sense do you yeah, do have a um, similar sort of um you know routine in the day that you follow now i do um basically what i do what i when i'm home full time like i have been i sort of decide that on monday wednesdays and fridays between 11 and 4 i will be at my desk no matter what even if i'm just drawing images of structures or whatever or going through emails or correcting previous drafts um and so Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays, that, that time at the desk is absolutely fundamental. Um, and then the other days I'll try and do some painting because I also, also do a bit of paintings. In a sense, um, <laughs> you almost bring that on yourself, don't you, with six projects, Susie? Yeah. But that's obviously what gets the best out of you to be able to go yeah. bang, 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 you know, have a whole bunch of stuff. I come from a different profession. So originally when I was a lawyer, the kind of hours I worked were just crazy. In some ways, this is much less kind of hours, you know, at the desk. Yeah. And as I was, I was going to elaborate before is that. Um, but the thing is, with the writing, is that once you clock off, you don't really clock off. You're thinking that you're there's always at least thirty percent of your brain that's like still, like turning over the ideas and so forth. So. You know, sometimes my kids sort of do these images of me talking to them where I'm only half there. So I have to actually make conscious effort to kind of <laughs> shut down. Right. And I'm not, I say I'm not very good at it, to be honest. Yes. I feel like I enjoy the kind of mechanics of thinking about storyline too yeah. much. And, and the good thing is that you can, you can turn on Netflix and watch something and, and call it research. <laughs> right, yes, yes, yes. So that's always quite good. But yeah. it, it, things will just um, fly into your head too, don't they, when you just sort of walking around in a half sort of zoned out state and you can actually then have some pretty good, you know, thinking time for yeah. projects you're working yeah. on. It it, it may yeah. hit I, I, at, at any time sort of thing as, as yeah. long as you're prepared yeah. to receive it, I guess. But um, Well, sort of. I mean, I used to be like that. I'm a little bit – I think it's changed a little bit now. I'm now more about – I mean, I'm always sort of quite passionate about wanting to say something specific. So I sort of now work backwards in a way, I think – 
okay, what do I want to say? And then I find a story to say that. Whereas I used to just bump into a story and tell the story and then find a reason to tell it. Oh, that's interesting, in yeah. Way, in the, yeah, in the last sort of four years, I think that's changed. I thought, what do I really want to say to the world? And I think what it is, and I get excited about that, but I think, what's the best way to say that? Yes. And then I find the story that, you know, and, I, and sometimes it's not the story that you imagine, but it's sort of, and in a way, it means that you don't spend a whole year just thinking, why am I telling this story? Right, and yeah. find the voice before the story, in a way. You, so that's my new, that's my latest thing. I'm not uh, sure if it'll work forever, but it works for now. Because <laughs> you've, you've had to sort of, I guess, in a sense, experiment with uh, new techniques of uh, because of the restrictions placed on you physically, you know, as to where you are and what you can and can't do. Mm. So you've made these changes. Do you think some of them are going to be permanent? I think they are actually. I think you know what one of the great things I've discovered is this, you know, like digital yoga and meditation. I feel like if I do that before I start working, it's a lot smoother. So maybe I can continue doing that rather than having to get in the car, take a yoga mat, get to a yoga place, do the course, come home, and then you've wasted sort of two and a half hours. Yeah, right. <laughs> if I can just do it, you know, like because it's in my study where I would do it and then move over to the test and just start writing in a way there's a certain piece that comes with writing that takes a little bit longer to get to to get into the zone if you're not relaxed with it. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that sort of hour before you start when you do a bit of a meditation or a yeah. bit of a stretch, kind of sit down and your, your energy is a bit more buzzy so it's easier. You know, it's like it's a bit more settled but buzzy with ideas rather than just all the things that you've got to sort out. <laughs> yeah, 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 so, yeah. Changing yeah. tax slightly, I, I'm, I'm – Governments yeah. in this country have invariably taken to the arts with a bit of a stick, uh, probably best exemplified sure. by the fact that the arts have been subsumed into the Department of Infrastructure, Transport, yeah, Regional yeah. Development and Communications. You know, mm. I'm serious about yeah. that. I mean, you know, but um, for the listeners... No, I know, I'm bored of oh, yeah. And can yeah. you, Susie Miller, envisage this government's response to this crisis so far as it affects the arts... I have a very dim view of how it's going to affect the arts. I really do. I can see. I'm actually glad that I have a career in London in theatre and a career in film in the US because somehow I, I feel that there's a real risk, something that I never would have thought, you know, five, ten years ago. There's a very real risk that this government is trying to, like, or trying to, or either deliberately or without care, basically annihilating the whole art sector because, first of all, they've pulled, they've just subsumed into infrastructure and communications, the sort of whole arts ministry. And then they just cut theatre to absolute shreds, so it's almost impossible to put things together now for some of those companies, and half the companies have disappeared. And then during this period of um, of people, of wages being paid by the government to various workers, the arts people who have really strong careers and have sacrificed a lot to be, and have only ever earned a certain amount anyway, um, have really been thrown kicked to the side. So it's almost like if there's if it was and you know but in at the same time we're sort of seeing footballers saying oh you know we've been off work now for sort of six months or but or six weeks and they're getting paid and people are worried about their mental health because they're not playing and you think wow that's on the news every night but what about all the arts workers that aren't getting paid that usually very you know and basically have all sorts of sort of anxiety about what's going to happen and it's not even just that the theatres are dark now. I mean, how long will they be like that for and will people ever come back to the theatre? Mm. And so there's been this horrible acknowledgement amongst my peers and my community that maybe a theatre doesn't want the arts. 
which is devastating because, you know, we have so many amazing artists. I mean, even when you're in America, you realise how, particularly in sort of theatre and, and, and film, and, um, how much they respect the artists that are trained in Australia because it's such a rigorous training. Yeah. And also this, it's such a high standard to get something on here because it's so hard to get something on. Mm. So, um, so people's craft is a lot more honed and people are all trained in their craft rather than just deciding one day to be a writer. And it's interesting because I just think, wow, you're going to throw all that away. I mean, for me, I just go, I might have to move to London. I mean, I couldn't survive in this industry in the way in the way that it's looking to pan out unless someone steps in. Um, and it's it's you know it's really it's soul destroying really. It's it's so important, obviously, to keep life in the arts. Uh, you know, the billions of dollars it actually generates within the economy. It seems ironic. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be registering with anyone. So they're actually cutting a billion dollar, multi billion dollar, you know, economic kind of um, bonus in the country. But also, the people come as tourists to a country. They don't just come for the beaches and for the um, and you know the sun. They also come because they want to experience culture. And I mean, to what extent can you actually partake of experiencing an Australian culture without being able to see the art and the theatre and the work that we create as artists that actually express our experience of living here. Yes, the, the theatres are asking that patrons, ticket holders, subscribers, etc., donate their tickets to the theatre to enable it to mm-hmm. keep going. What else do yeah. you think can be done by the general public to help support the arts through this then? You know, it's so funny. I was just thinking that the other day and I thought, gee, I hope the general public do want the arts. I mean, I hope the government isn't representative of what most people in Australia think, like it doesn't matter. <laughs> They're much more concerned about their AFL or their NRL. Um, so, you know, I, I always used to think, of course, Australians do, but then you start to think, wow, this is a government that most people voted in, so I'm worried that they don't. But the people that do and really want the, the arts to be a really vibrant part of Australian culture need to decide that when the bans are lifted that they'll take the risk to go to the theatre, that they'll decide between Netflix and the theatre, that they'll actually make it um, a concerted effort to go out to the theatre and decide that they'll, you know, that, that it's a political act to do so because you're actually um, putting your money and your presence to assemble with artists who put something together for your entertainment and your stimulus. Um, I think also just recognising that... Um, if there's not going to be, <laughs> if you want an Australian like set of playwrights and Australian um, work and your stories on stage, then you need to put pressure on some of those theatre companies to put on Australian stories and employ Australian writers rather than producing work from overseas. I think it's um, absolutely. I agree. I, I think it's um, theatre by its nature. Obviously, is very creative and innovative. And do you think that out of this adversity? we can utilise that um, creativity and innovation to take the industry forward? I mean, are you personally doing changing um, uh, or having to be creative and innovative to get your works produced or heard or seen or, or anything like that? Look, I think that people always say, oh, artists will always create, so it doesn't matter. But the truth of the matter is that they also have to put food on the table, and so some of them just give up. Some of the best artists will give up through this period because they feel so unsupported by government. And that's like a tragedy, really, because that's like a whole generation maybe of young people that won't be engaged in the arts to, as creators who are on the way but have hit sort of the roadblocks that we all hit early on, and this is a big roadblock. 
Um, and also the fact that it, all the cuts to theatre came just prior to the virus and were, were, were launched during the virus. And you go, well, <laughs> really, who wants to fight that wave against theatre? Mm. Um, so the, what the general, it's almost like whatever the innovation is, it's not really the responsibility of the artist to sort of make art be appreciated. It's actually about the community deciding that that's a value that's important. And to fight for it. I mean, it's it's not just the artists that get the benefit of the art because they're working in it. It's for the whole community. And I think the other thing is that during the lock-in period or the lockdown is um, we recognise how important it is to sort of be in the same place, to sort of experience something together and to assemble as people together in the same room. And no matter how much Netflix people watch every night, no matter how much we sit on the couch with our family and watch television or sit on the computer and Zoom in with other people, there is something about being in the same room with other people and breathing the same air that creates a different experience of a piece of art or storytelling. And that is the sort of storytelling that has been passed down for the ages forever, from around a fire in the sort of you know, prehistoric days right up until now. It's about people collecting together and being part of a story, watching a story or, or hearing a story unfold. And that's what theatre gives you. Yeah. And I think that possibly, maybe, all this time at home, separated from human beings, people will see that there's so much value in theatre that they didn't see before because they didn't differentiate between sort of Netflix storytelling and live theatre. So that that could be one of the big positives coming out of this, that yeah, uh, people yeah. have a, a reflection, time of reflection, and, and think, you know what, this is important. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us are actually having time of reflection. There's no way you could not during this period. And we're deciding what is important to us. And I think, you know, we go in, we go very, we go inward and we go toward family and the people that matter. But we also recognise that it's actually people coming together that matters. Yeah. <laughs> and theatre is the most obvious source of entertainment that provides that for you. Mm. Mm. And music as well, obviously. But yeah, performing arts. Yeah. Oh, look, it's a, it's a, it's a fractious time. It's a, a nerve-wracking time for those who are dependent or will be depending on on the arts to make their career. Um, yeah. Lots of people having to, I don't know, I guess find another string to their bow as a fallback um, to yeah. develop a flexibility. Yeah. But maybe from this there will be coming some ideas that will be able to utilise to still entertain and create and, um, you know, um, make new art that will be just as appreciated. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, me too. I hope so too. And I feel like artists are kind of amazing the way they find ways of expressing. And certainly there's been a lot of digital presence. I just think that coming into a room with people really... I don't know, there's just something about it, isn't there? Like going to a party in real life is so much, it's so different to doing a house party digital. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and look, let's hope that out of adversity comes something really special. Um, and, yeah. and talking about something special, thank you so much for your time, Susie. I really appreciate that. And uh, oh, good luck with all. Thank you for in, in, enticing me to sit down and think these things through. It's great. <laughs> Well, this is my little bit of innovation and creativity. So uh, um, I really appreciate your time and and your words and pearls of wisdom. Um, Good luck with all (laughs) your endeavours and I look forward to catching up with you hopefully in the near future and seeing a few more of your productions. Oh, thank you. Just go and see anything. Go and see anything and everything. (laughs) Not just mine but everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Okay, Susie, thanks for your time. Thank you, Richard. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye.
We'll have links in our show notes to the things we've discussed on this podcast. Check out our Instagram, This Corona Life, for photos of our guests and links. And take a look at the website, redgproductions.com. Thank you to my producer, Kiro Sullivan. I look forward to your company on our next episode of This Corona Life. Bye for now.